While you're turning, I will say that I know we've uh, had a little minor trial this morning. No plumbing works because the water department has all the water shut off in this area. They didn't tell anybody that because they didn't know they were going to do it either. They had a leak in the main line. So um, we're sorry for that. It's outside of our control, and we didn't find out until about 8, 8 o'clock when I tried to make coffee. So um, I hope you'll forgive that inconvenience. Psalm chapter 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I want to bring a message entitled, What Can the Righteous Do? This is a fundamental question in life for humanity. What can the righteous do? And it's in reference to the fact that in this world, often, unrighteousness seems to rule. And the righteous don't have anywhere to make an appeal. I think of cases and instances where uh, we have seen in our own nation, a nation founded on laws, a nation founded on justice, and yet at the same time we all know of cases, and some of you may have suffered cases like this where though you're right in what you have done, you're being accused of wickedness, falsely accused, falsely convicted. Our, nation te- our, our national stats tell us there are a large percentage of people that in the prison systems suffer because of wrongs done by others that they have taken the fall for or for things that were misconstrued in court cases. There are percentages of people there that are guiltless and suffering, ser- serving long terms under in unjust sentences. And so it's those kinds of situations. And it's situations like we've seen play out on the national and world stage where whole nations of people are taken by wicked leaders into depths of depression and destruction. And the righteous in those nations suffer just like the unrighteous. And they would cry out to God in this way. What can we do? I mean, you've put a rule of law over us. You've given us a foundation to base our life on. We've done it. And now what are we going to do? There's no one to make our appeal to. We think not just in these terms political and and just systems, but we also think of those who face persecution around the world. My mind turns to um, the professor in North Korea who for years taught his classes illegally uh, the gospel through his history teaching. In in, uh, the midst of one of his classes, the, the local police stormed into the room and took him under arrest and he was 
persecuted severely but released and told not to ever again teach his students about this Jesus Christ and this gospel. And yet, he soon returned to his class with the hope of Peter and John. What's right is right. You say it's not right to teach about this gospel. I believe that this gospel is the hope, the only hope for mankind. So I'm going to teach about this, Jesus. And if I'm punished, I'm punished. Well, as he continued to teach and lecture, then the military police came to his classroom. They put a, put a gun to him. They took him from the room. They imprisoned him. They beat him. They tortured his family. They killed his wife and children. At his death, in his public death, he is known to have said, it was all worth it. And then he was killed. And his students are left to ask the question, what will the righteous do? Or in northern China, we have friends there uh, that used to be there as missionaries. At the halftime of soccer games, they would bring out men convicted of preaching the gospel. They would shoot them in the middle of the soccer match. They would load them on a wagon and drag them off. And the righteous are left to say, what can we do? This is the exact kind of persecution that the David is writing about. And there's no specific life setting, I don't believe, for this psalm. It says that David wrote this psalm, but it doesn't tell us in what setting it was. Some, Charles Spurgeon being one, says it was during his time of being persecuted by Saul. And yet there's things about that persecution under Saul's hand that don't really fit, that don't match. Why? Because during those persecutions, David did run to the mountains. David did flee and hide. And in this text, he doesn't. Some have said it's Absalom again. This psalm comes from his time being persecuted and chased and un by his son unjustly. But there again, he fled Jerusalem during that day. And in our psalm, he doesn't. He stands up against his attackers. So we're not sure, and I think it's even better that we don't know what it is because we're able to identify even more, um, more in our own lives because the, the psalmist doesn't tell us what exactly he is facing. In the sermon today, the text breaks down in three simple sections. Verses 1 through 3 then tell us the condition or the state that the, the psalmist is facing and his foundational question what can the righteous do is in that section four through six tell us what we are to do in this time of persecution and then verse seven gives us the hope of our persecution so I'm first point in the text first point in the sermon is we will be tempted to lose heart when attacked by the wicked notice in the first verse he says in the Lord I take refuge now this is a common theme in the Psalms if you're familiar at all with Psalm 46 or other refuge psalms where David says that he takes refuge in God. God is my rock and God is my salvation. This is a common way that David refers to the Lord. In times of trouble, the believer, the righteous one, is to run to God. Why? Because God is the only certain refuge that we have. You can't run to your family in times of distress because your family very well may be going through the distress with you. Or they may be the cause of the distress, right? You can't count on your friends because we all know friends are not always dependable. We run to them in times of trouble and they're facing their own heartache and they can't seem to help us in our day of trouble. We can't run to, many times, the authorities above us 
we appeal to them and they don't have an understanding heart. But when we appeal to God, we have a refuge. He's always hearing us. He's always seeing us. He's always identifying with our struggle. So when we are tempted to flee during the attack of the wicked, to lose heart during the attack of the wicked, we rather should run to God. When you're attacked and overcome by sin, where will you turn? Where will you go? This is a key question. Because though this text deals with the righteous, I think it's important that we understand that even as righteous people, we sin, don't we? I mean, there's no one who's blameless, not anyone except the Lord. So when you sin, being a righteous person in Christ, where do you go? Well, some run to guilt, and they feel bad for themselves. And some run to good works, because that makes them feel better. But David says, in the Lord, I will take refuge. So even when the righteous find themselves in sin, they take refuge in God. I would say that one of the tests, one of the ways we can know whether we are the Lord's or not, is whether we turn to Him or not. When you're down, when you're depressed, when you feel forsaken, when you are attacked, where do you go? Wherever you go, that most likely is the God you are serving. David turned to the Lord. Because the Lord was his refuge. So he didn't lose heart. He turned to the Lord. But we'll be tempted to lose heart. Why? Because the attack is so strong. They're speaking not just to his ears. Notice in verse 1. But they're speaking directly to his soul. Now, this very well could be the attack of a human who is speaking harmful words which strike deep into the heart. Or this could be his main enemy our main enemy we don't know which it could be either one it could be another human who's chiding him and making fun of him and and goading him to say you you can't turn to God who is God you can't see God this is a real life problem deal with a real life problem with real life solutions David it could be that or it could be Satan or one of Satan's many minions right He's speaking directly to David's heart, directly to David's soul. He's telling him what? Flee. Flee like a bird to the mountains, David. Run. All hope is lost. That's what he's telling him. All hope is lost. You're taking refuge in the Lord? He doesn't want to help you. All hope is lost. Run. There's no hope unless you run. Why? Why why is David being told to run? Well, it's clear in verse 2. Because there is an attack laid for him, hidden for him in the dark. There's a trap that's been set. And the evil and wicked ones are bending the bow. They're ready to shoot him, to kill him. To take advantage of him in his weakness. And it's to this situation that David cries out. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, I said I don't believe this text is specifically about an event in David's life, but if there is an event which gives us some thought, maybe, that it could be about a historical time of, that we have recorded for us in the Scripture, it would be 1 Samuel 22. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel 22. David is fleeing from the presence of Saul. He's under attack. Jonathan has told him 
David saw my father seeks to kill you. Hurry, run, don't stay here. Don't even take time to prepare to go. Just run. Don't go back and get food. Don't go back and get clothes. Don't go back and do anything. Run. My father's passion is to kill you. David then in verse chapter 21 goes, flees to Nob. And Ahimelech is there, the priest. And David goes to him in chapter 21 and says that he needs help. He's on an errand for, a royal errand for the king. And Ahimelech is confused because he says he's a commander of armies and he comes by himself. What's wrong? Something's not right. He says, well, it's a, it's a move of stealth. I'm here and I need help. And Ahimelech gives him help. Ahimelech senses that David's in dire need. And so he gives him the holy bread of presence. Something that he's not to eat. But here an exception is made. He gives it to him so that he might feed himself and be nourished. And so he's taken care of and then he goes on to Gath. David goes on to Gath. Now in chapter 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul, downcast in soul, gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know that God, what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the uh, tamarisk tree on the height of his spear in his hand, And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as, as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse come into Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. What happens after this is one of the darkest events in the history of Israel. Saul takes with him his men and goes to Ahimelech. And he calls out the priests of God. And he murders them. He murders all of them save one. And then his men, bloodthirsty, turned on the city and killed men and women and children. They slaughtered the whole city. David received news of this by the one surviving priest. And his answer is similar to Psalm 11. Because it's at this point you would realize Saul means serious business. And he commands an entire army. This would be the time to flee. But instead of fleeing, historically, David stays put and he says, I will protect you. You come to me and I will avenge your blood, your, your household blood. 
You stay with me and I will protect you. That's close to, I think, what's happening in this text. Why can David be so confident? Why can David, in the time of distress and attack, not be tempted to lose heart? Because even though the foundations are destroyed, his confidence in God is not destroyed. God is his refuge. So out of the, one of the darkest moments in his days, one of the dark times of his life, David writes this psalm with full confidence. We will be tempted like David when we're attacked to lose heart. But like David, we can rest in God's judgment. Four through six tell us one of the most beautiful truths in all the Bible. And that is that though the foundations are shaken, though the just suffer with the unjust, though the righteous will face persecution and testing in this life, God never fails. God never changes. God never is shaken. Look at what it says. What can the righteous do? Turn to the Lord is the answer. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. I just want to stop there. Some have said in Psalm 11, it must have been written by someone besides David because it speaks of a temple, and there was no temple in David's day. I beg to differ. There very well was a temple in David's day. You see, the temple which Moses saw in heaven, he copied in the tabernacle, and he built it to its measurements after what he had seen in heaven, after the plans that God had laid for him. David, I believe, went to the tabernacle knowing this is just a mere shadow of the heavenly temple where God is. God doesn't dwell in a tent made by hands. God dwells in the heavenly temple, the heavenly courtroom, the heavenly palace. That's where God is. Notice he says the Lord is seated not in the earthly tabernacle, but in heaven. And he's sitting not anywhere except on his own throne. The confidence of David, the confidence of you, the confidence of me has to be in the day of unrighteousness, has to be that God is none unshaken. God has not changed. God still sits in the temple on his throne of justice. Here the, the writer, the psalmist, sees what we fail to see so often. That God is testing it's not that God is tempting, but God is testing, and He is judging, and He is seeing. Notice in that verse, in verse 4, that He says, His eyes see. It speaks of the omnipresence of God and the omniscience of God. His eyelids test. That word test in the Hebrew is best understood in this text to mean He's judging us. He's judging us. He's judging the righteous. He's judging the unrighteous. Everywhere in all times, God sees, and God judges, and God's justice is unperverted. Though we face trial in this life, though we are tested, we never lose heart because God is on His throne. Now that may not matter much to you today because your life may be great. Everything's sailing along, all the kids are healthy, the husband and wife relations are wonderful. You've gotten a pay raise at work. And things feel good. But trust me, when the world comes crashing in, your only hope will be that God is seated on his throne in his temple. Your only hope will be not your boss, not your husband, not your children. It will be him. If you don't have him, 
then what, what shall the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? If we don't have God, nothing. There's nothing we can do. When you're sitting across from a doctor who tells you your spouse will die from cancer, there's, trust me, there's no earthly place to go for that. There's no hope anywhere to be found except in the Holy One, in His holy temple, on His holy throne. So when David faces the temptation to flee, rather than flee, he turns to the refuge of God. Why? Because God is just. God is just. He doesn't foresee a Hail Mary pass to where he's going to even live. He doesn't know whether he'll live or die. But he trusts God. He doesn't know whether the situation will get better or worse. But he trusts God. Why? Because God is in his temple. God is seated on the throne of heaven. And he's judging. He never fails to judge both the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice in verse 5, he explains the testing. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So God, in his justice, loves the righteous and hates the wicked. When I, I think about this text, and I, I can't help but think of Genesis chapter 18. And I believe the next verse tells us we should be thinking of that. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be their portion of their cup. Where does that come from? That comes from Sodom and Gomorrah. In Sodom and Gomorrah's time, they were the most powerful city in the valley. They were the Mecca. They were where everyone wanted to be. All the hip people wanted to live there. Abraham, the righteous one, lived in a pasture. And here, this city seems to be prospering. And Abraham, looking at that, you know, had to think, boy, the unrighteous. I mean, he knew of their unrighteousness. The unrighteous are being rewarded. But then the angel of the Lord came and said, I'm requiring a judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah today. And we all know what happens. He begins to barter with God. And he gets all the way down. If I can find even just basically my family to be righteous, will you spare the city for that? And the Lord said, if your family, this is the way you have to understand this. If your family, with that less than that 10 number and that less than 10, that's, that, he's counted in his head. Well, that's Lot and his wife and his daughters and his son-in-laws. And, and, and I can muster up 10 people, Lord. Will you spare for that? Yes, if you can find them. What do we find when he gets there? When the angels of the Lord go into the city, they don't find 10 people. They don't find anybody. Lot's not even physically in that sentiment, in that situation, being righteous, he offers his daughters to the men of the city. That's one of the most cowardice things you could do, right? He was a righteous man acting unrighteously. So God rained down coals and sulfur on that city. The judgment was coming. So David takes confidence in this fact. God is on his throne. He is in his holy temple. He's testing the men both the righteous and the unrighteous. And as we know from Sodom and Gomorrah, the day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment's coming. So when we are tempted to flee, we turn to God and we trust Him. We trust Him and His judgments. That's what we see here in 4 through 6. Finally, we will see Him. We will see Him face to face. This is the hope. This is the hope of judgment. You say, I'm afraid of judgment. 
Well, if you're outside of Christ, you should be afraid of judgment. But if you're in Christ, look at your hope. The Lord is righteous. He loves the righteous deeds. The upright shall see him. The upright shall see him. How? They shall see his face. What a hope that is expressed by David here in this psalm. That in the day of testing, in the day of judgment, he will not be punished. But rather he will be seen face to face with the Lord. The unrighteous, not so, not, not so fortunate. But him and the righteous, face to face with God. It's not just here in this text that we find this kind of hope and this kind of, of, of situation and the deliverance that's promised. If you take your Bible and turn to John chapter 5, Jesus, on this judgment theme, gives some very clear teaching. In the day of trouble, David turned to the Lord because the Lord was his refuge. He trusted God's justice. He knew that he would see God face to face. That's Psalm 11. Look at John 5. John 5, Jesus says, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown to him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now we're getting an insight into who it is that's sitting on that heavenly throne in that heavenly temple. It's God the Son who sits there. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. You notice his time. He says, an hour is coming and it's right now. This is the time that I'm speaking of, right now. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What he's speaking of here, I believe, is that those who see and hear him and believe in him are granted eternal life. Their spirits are made alive. Dead men are made alive, like it says in Ephesians chapter 2. So, the hour is coming, and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son. The spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's the promise of Jesus. For those who take refuge in Him, life is the promise. You will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And he is given authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So, ju- so Jesus is judging. He has the power to judge. And what is he do- judging? Faith. If you believe in him, you have life and you live right now. Not in the future. Now. You're made spiritually alive. 
That's why David had such confidence, because the Spirit of God lived in him, and he already knew he'd taken refuge in God's promised Messiah. He had already taken refuge in God's justice, which is found in Jesus. But then look, verse 28, do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming, not now, but it's coming, in the future. It hasn't happened yet. It still hasn't happened today. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. That means they are physically dead. Listen, the unjust may in this life seemingly escape judgment. But they will never escape God's justice. Because they will be in the tombs and on that day they will hear the voice of the judge. And what will they do? They will come to his judging bench. They will all come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The hope of Psalm 11 verse 7 is this hope. That this life may never see equitable judging. This life may never give you the hope of justice. But God, who is testing man with his eyes, will judge. Who is this God? Well, it's the Son of God. It's Jesus Christ. And he is seated on his heavenly throne. And he is seeing the works and the deeds of man. And he is testing the faith of man. And if your faith is in him, he will raise you from the tomb and give you Eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. But trust me, if you're outside of him on that day, Sodom and Gomorrah will be a mere shadow, which is what it is, of eternal justice. The reason brimstone and fire and sulfur are present at Sodom and Gomorrah is because brimstone and fire and sulfur are present in hell. What we're supposed to see in Genesis 18 is not how bad Sodom and Gomorrah is, but how just God is and how his judgment will be inescapable. That's what we're supposed to see. And we're supposed to see in Genesis 18 a small window into the everlasting justice of God. Why? Because there's no city in that spot even today. Even today, there's no place, no city. The judgment has remained, and it will remain on those outside of Christ. So listen. You're being tempted as his child to run, to flee, to give up hope. Don't give up hope. Don't ever quit believing in the Son of God. Because he sees that faith and he rewards it with life. If you're outside of him, you need to see Psalm 11 as a warning. And John 5 as a warning. Why? Because his justice is as long as his love. He will love his children for everlasting life, and he will hate the wicked with eternal hatred. There's no hope outside of him. We can see it, this text, Psalm 11, in Revelation 22. Same one writing here. The writer of John is the writer of Revelation. In Revelation 22, he has seen... The vision of the new Jerusalem in 21. And then in 22 he says, Then the angel, <clears throat> or he, 
showed me the river of water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, which it, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were there. Uh, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in that city, and His servants will worship Him. Verse four. Psalm eleven, verse seven. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The hope of Psalm 11, 7 is the hope of us Christians in this time, in this age. It's the hope of glory. It's the hope of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's the hope of a throne that sits in the middle of the city, and all of the nations come to him. And when they come, there will be no darkness, there will be no sin, there will be no injustice. But people will see him face to face as a man sees his friends. Man, what a, what a, what a blessing we have in the hope of Psalm 11. And I pray that it's your hope today.